0: So, as we were <coughs> gathered last time, what we're, kinda, we're, we're now officially, and perhaps to some of you, finally winding down the Cain and Abel uh, narrative here. Um, and, and this morning, I just want to once again remind that what we're seeing in uh, the foregoing text this morning is what we were introduced to last week. And that is that even in judgment, so th- there's the cursing of Cain and his, his lineage um, and, and at that point, just Cain, as he would stand as a man, a man receiving sentence. Um, but that even in judgment being shown to Cain, there was patience that attended to his path as well. So, and, and we know that, again, that he simply wasn't obliterated at the moment of the murder of Abel. That is, that he didn't spontaneously combust uh, when he murdered Abel. And so what will be the quality of life that uh, Cain will live out in the days ahead? Will somebody immediately turn the corner, uh, perhaps, uh, well, I shouldn't say immediately, someone born within the family unit shortly thereafter, I should say, would pledge to then come along and kill Cain? What will the quality of his life be as a man condemned? And we introduced last week the concept of what is known as common grace or accidental mercy. And accidental mercy or common grace is shown to Cain. And what we mean by accidental is not that God accidentally lets some out or that it's uh, uh, not intended for its purposes. But what we mean by accidental is that sense of commonality, that, that it's, it's general, it's, it, it doesn't belong, this, this form and type of grace and mercy doesn't belong to saving promises, but it's generic, it's patient, it enables a life of nature to exist. The non-saving or natural life that Cain was able to experience, the non-saving mercy shown to Cain, if you recall last week, was... The sense of a generic protection of his life. Look, 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 at, the, look at the text where it says, uh, then um, remember, behold, you've driven me away. At the end of that text, I shall be a fugitive and wanderer. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. But notice the nature of the promise that he gives to Cain. It's not really promissory. It's more a pledge unto Cain. That is, It's conditioned. If anyone kills you, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. You see, it's a generic protection of his life. It's conditional. Um, It's it's not saving, it's it's not immutable, it's conditioned. Um, In other words, it's not promising that all men everywhere will abide by it, it's generic. If you do end up being slain by the hand of someone, I will pledge judgment on that person. It doesn't give Cain that sense of security and surety that belong to saving promises that are indeed immutable and of which we are reminded of this morning at the table. The nature of the two types of promises are not the same. And then this way in which he furthers this generic promise in the life of Cain, this lack of surety, Cain will always be left-footed for the rest of his life, uh, not physically, uh, emotionally. He'll always be off balance, um, worried that there is indeed someone who is around the corner waiting in the darkness to slay him. Uh, And and the the peace that he can just barely grasp and hold on to is, well, it's going to be worse for you, guy, um, than it is for me in this moment. You're going to get judgment sevenfold. That, 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 that's the meager bit of mercy that, that Cain can hold on to. And it really doesn't help you sleep at night. So Cain is always going to be off balance going forward. But he does go forward with the next generic promise that was provided we looked at last week. And that is simply that his wife can go with him. Again, unsure if Cain was married previously to this or if this is a grace that God showed him to enable him to take a wife from the family unit. But again, Cain was sent away uh, with a wife, which is, once again, a general form of mercy or a generic non-covenanted mercy. Look in verse 17 and you see the experience of, of humanity here, even among the sinful Cain. That is, in verse 17, you see Cain knew his wife. That is, he is unable to enjoy the the union, a a sexual relationship with his wife. Uh, That too is a mercy shown to the ungodly, a a commonality of graciousness in the human experience. And then further from that physical communion uh, and union, there is a child who is conceived. Further sense of generic and, and natural mercy shown by the Lord... And that is, Cain was able to enjoy intimacy with his wife, which is a very natural and human experience. And then from that union, there is indeed the joy of a child being born to his family. These blessings are apart from saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and his promises. They are generic. They are non-saving. But they are very meaningful. So Cain experienced the birth of a son... Further, then, you see the freedom that Cain experienced, the gracious, accidental mercy of the Lord. Look in verse 17, he built the city. And then you see he named the city after his son that had been born, his firstborn son. We're going to call this town Enochville, after Enoch. And perhaps the reason for Cain to go out and build a city... Uh, was because he he wanted to shore up that sense of stability. He knows the conditionality of God's mercy. It's accidental, non-saving. It's a life that he's walking as a man condemned. So how can I make the most, how can I make, perhaps we could say, lemonade out of the lemons that I'm experiencing? And the lemonade he makes is they forge a city together. It enables him some sense of security from the man who he feels is always just one step behind him. The, the, this, this nervousness, this imbalance, the, the sense of fear of the unknown and a person who is seeking to avenge Abel's death. He builds a city to provide himself some sort of security. And uh, amazingly, um, perhaps God doesn't destroy the city immediately. And yet the, the, the idea of city uh, and man's pride go hand in hand. Perhaps it, it is hand in hand with the naming of the city of Enoch after his firstborn son there it is, you know, the proud father. He puts Enochville on the first town they build in namesake of his own son. And then by the time you continue with the idea of men and their rebellion, you get to um, uh, uh, Babel, which is, again, let us make our name great. Let us proclaim our excellencies. And you recall what occurs in the naming of Babel, uh, in, in, in the great city that men were going to ascend to the heights and own their own destiny. The rebellion of men is somehow connected in these early origin stories to the founding and establishing of cities where they proclaim their own greatness. Cain seems to still be of that generational mindset. But what's striking here in the text that goes forward, and I do mean striking, um, because you would not immediately connect it to um, the condemnation that Cain experiences. But I think this goes to show just how merciful God is, even if it's non-saving, e- even if it's non-redemptive mercy and grace that is shown. Notice uh, um, how full and, and uh, uh, strong the patience of the Lord is towards sinful man and their exploits. Notice in the text going forward um, I, I will, uh, let's see, we'll, we'll review it. Just look at verse 20. I, I'll skip all of the names. Adam did a fine job, but I'm not just going to constantly work through all of these difficult names. So we'll look at the highlights of what is striking about the names that emerge from moving the narrative story. Beginning in verse 20, notice, Ada bore Jabal. And now as it's telling the story, notice, notice what occurs. He's the father of those who dwell in tents and the father of those who have livestock. Then look at verse... Uh, and again, as the father, he's the tip of the spear. He's the beginning of these origins in some measure. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre or the lyre and the pipe. So he's the a, a tip of the spear on, on instrumentation. And this is all coming out of... Who, who do you expect this to come from? Uh, perhaps not the offspring of Cain. But that is exactly what is striking about this passage. Verse 21, you get down and you see, or verse 22, sorry, verse 22, Tubal, Cain. And then notice what it attaches to this individual. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Again, under God's common grace or uncovenanted accidental mercies, The patience of the Lord appears to the ungodly line of Cain and his descendants so much so that they are at the forefront of developing culture and civilization of the early origin stories. Again, would you you expect that to come from Cain, a man condemned? Absolutely not. But the patience of the Lord appears even to the ungodly. And under that patience emerges culture and civilization. If you take together uh, Jabal and his work in management of livestock and breeding programs. So you look, again, why would we say so? Because in verse 20, he was the father of all those who dwell in the tents. And and the father of those of industry who possess livestock. So with Jabal, we have a large-scale livestock management. Some measure of cattle breeding on a large scale. He's the father of all who are doing it by this time in civilization. Look at verse 21 with Jubal. Again, the idea of musical development in the arts. Interesting that in the earliest of origin stories, somewhere around early, um, the, the early 100s, almost 200 uh, BC, we're looking at the development of instruments. Interesting how nature inspires men with musical development and art. But notice, it doesn't require a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to do so. More on that just in a moment. But consider verse 22, Tubal Cain. When we take it together with him, there's a craftsmanship about him. The father of large-scale craftsmanship with bronze and ironwork. So by the time you piece this together, we have an emergent culture with the Cainites who are highly skilled. Not just, you know, not doing a good job. And somebody who knows the saving promises <clears throat> of Jesus Christ needs to come and help them with their skill. That's not what we see at all. Indeed, rather, we're pointed here that Cain's offspring are highly skilled in agriculture, highly skilled in the arts, and highly skilled in craftsmanship. One writer reminds us of this text and he summarizes it this way. He says, quote, although Cain lacked the promises of grace. That is, he is apart from the covenant. He is apart from salvation. He is apart from the saving mercy of God. Although Cain lacked the promises of grace, it was still something momentous that children are born to him. That he founds a city, tills the ground, breeds cattle, ...and that he is not completely cut off from society and companionship of other human beings. So, the early civilization and the founding of cultural art and industry belongs to the Cainite cursed lineage. So, if you think about culture in those terms, and you make (coughs) too quick of a leap... ...to say, if culture's origins and civilization's origins belong to Cainites, that is condemned individual and his lineage. Is culture, then, if we jump to culture now, how should we analyze culture? Is it essentially a product of Cain? Is that why Christians struggle with the idea of culture? How to interact with secular culture? Is it because constantly we're reminded that it is simply a product of Cain, is mass culture and its products? They're simply fruits of the wicked, and they possess no value for the redeemed. Perhaps that's a question worth asking. If we were to ask it, which I am asking with you right now, and I know you're asking with me, is it? Is that the problem of secular culture that is fundamentally a product of Cain? Therefore, all of its fruits have something Cainite in them. The answer to that, I would say, is no. I'll give you two brief biblical examples to consider the value of culture. One is simply, you remember, early on, the author here who writes the origin stories for the people of God. Indeed, Moses himself. If you know the story of Moses, you're well aware that he was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving his speech. A fantastic text. If you haven't read recently, or perhaps ever read, Acts 7. Take time to go to Acts, New Testament, find Acts, look at chapter 7, and read Stephen's speech. It's, it, 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 it's very powerful, of course, as the Word of God is in every text. But as he recounts the story of redemptive history from origins all the way forward, it, it, it's a beautiful speech that Stephen gives. And he, refer, he references Moses and his education. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he speaks of Moses' education In the Egyptians. And he says this in verse 22 that as a result of Moses' education among the Egyptians, he was mighty in his words and mighty in his deeds. Again, Cainite culture, Cainite education. Moses reaped the benefits. Second biblical example, you think, again, if, 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 a product of culture is essentially canite. Is it thereby to be resisted in all forms as a Christian, a person of faith, since its origins is in unbelief? The answer is no, not wholesale. Second example, Solomon's wisdom. Again, if you go to First Kings four, and speaking of Solomon's wisdom, it is said that his wisdom is <clears throat> excuse me, greater than that of the pagan sages of his day. Indicating, indeed, to us that the wisdom of the surrounding pagans was of great value. Think of it. Solomon's wisdom, if it is greater than the wisdom of the unbeliever, in a comparison analysis, there is great value in the wisdom of the unbeliever. It's just that Solomon's was greater. So in summary, regarding the establishment of civilization and culture among the Cainites, if we were to look at Scripture as a whole, it reflects a rather positive assessment of the wisdom that men, apart from saving grace, can achieve on a daily level. You see, it's this common grace that enables depraved individuals to be less depraved in their actions than they otherwise would be. It doesn't mean some men are more depraved than others. It means they may act more depraved than others. But all men, apart from faith in Christ, are depraved individuals. Jesus says in the Gospels that their father is Satan, speaking of the origins of their sin. If we were to put it on a simplistic level, perhaps you have unsaved neighbors and you rejoice every day when you go home that they're less depraved in their actions than they possibly could be because of God's common grace. This enables them, that is, those apart from faith, as you see here with Cain, whether it's agricultural, music, development in the arts, or craftsmanship to build some of the most beautiful buildings and coliseums in the world. It allows one who is unbelieving to interact fruitfully with creation, even to bring forth common goods and blessings to the general public. I listed a few in my mind. What, what are <clears throat> some general common goods that I, Adam, and you, together, us, the people of God in this age, experience that don't require a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to be of benefit to each of us in our daily life? I immediately thought of, I'm sure, what you would assign medicine. Somebody in my household, we were talking the other day, and speaking of uh, uh, the idea of resisting a nostalgic view of the past, you know, it, it's tempting um, uh, 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 to, to read particular books, to understand an era of history, to romanticize it. Um, maybe you read a Wendell Berry book and you want to be transmitted to another generation in time uh, because you just sat there and thought, oh, I want to be on a farm in the middle of the, I don't know, 1800s. Uh, that's the life for me. Um, and, and you think, yeah, yeah, um, he paints a pretty powerful picture in his, in his novels. Um, but you do remember, like, what medicine was like during that time, don't you? Um, I don't know that we want to go back to there. Read a Civil War story. And that would help us be like, I, I'm good. I'm good where I am. Um, uh, uh, getting bullets out of flesh during that time was less than enjoyable. I would rather have an anesthesiologist, perhaps, uh, these days. So, so th- there is this sense, so how have we grown in, in medicine? How, ha- how is it a benefit to me? Is it just because all the Christians who knew Christ savingly are the ones who are able to do the testing, to reproduce the testing, to make a scientific method, and thereby bring an anesthesiologist to someone who is having a baby? No. Um, but I thought all men apart from Christ are depraved. Indeed but there is this accidental mercy shown to all men everywhere where the sun does rise in the east upon everybody. It sets in the west and shows a merciful moon at night to everybody. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. So it is with medicine, government, business, art district, downtown, maybe some shows more than others, But nonetheless, indeed, the arts, entertainment, scientific discovery, technology, all of us partake in technology, education, even acts of philanthropy don't require a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, experience God's patience through his accidental mercy and grace. So in that sense, we can praise culture. We can participate in culture. Indeed, we benefit from culture. So I think that our critique of culture has to be wise, right? We can't beat down the house and then reap a bunch of its benefits while we're beating down the house with our other hand. We must be clear in our critiques of what is appropriate and inappropriate about culture as we participate and benefit from it as believers. Yet before we would indiscriminately celebrate culture, on the other hand, right? On one side, we condemn culture nonstop, and it's always, there's something being produced by it that's easy for us to assail constantly and somehow take the moral high ground. Or we swing way over here, and we just adopt culture. We live within it. We think, like, if you're a real believer, you'll show how relevant you are, and you'll act and mimic and live within culture and its influences in order to have a testimony. We might swing way over here and do that. So, so, so before we uh, 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 sh- uh, assail it constantly or we just live within it as though there's no mark of belief upon the house of God, we would swing somewhere, hopefully sophisticated, in the middle, wisely develop our understanding of culture and recognize that a person can be skilled. And, and I want you to hear this piece. A person can be skilled and wicked at the same time. This is something that, 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 that's the piece of culture that we recognize. That indeed we reap its benefits of skill and production and consumption. But we recognize those indeed who work within it can be skilled and wicked at the same time. And this is what we find emerge in this story in Genesis 4 with Lamech. So I want you to key in on Lamech as he emerges as the key Uh, the key character of the remainder of our narrative is Lamech. So what we have given us in Genesis 4 here with Enochville is that we have a thriving city in some sense, where we have the culture, we have arts, we have entertainment, we have craftsmanship, agriculture. We have some sense of maybe a rule of law. It's hard to know for sure. But I say only some rule, because we'll see... In the midst of this fledgling community, in this city that is being built, we have a, a, a testimony that emerges out of the text for us to receive this testimony that characterizes largely what's taken place in Enochville. And it's Lamech. Notice what we have in the story of Lamech. You'll see him introduced in the last of verse 18, and, Methus- and Methushel fathered Lamech. Now, it introduces us to Lamech, and then we're finding out more about the character of Lamech. Verse 19, and Lamech, this is what we need to know about him. He took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Then jump down to verse 23, because Lamech appears yet again. Why? Because... Yes, there's a thriving sense of culture and, and, and civilization through 20 through uh, 22. But don't get misguided about what this culture represents. Lamech is here to clarify the ethos of the town. Lamech said to those two wives that I told you about in verse 18... So, so Moses saying, here he is, he fathered, uh, or he, he, he uh, took two wives. I'll be back to that in a moment. But yeah, notice verse 20, verse 21, verse uh, 22. But hey, back to Lamech. Listen to what he said to his two wives. Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. You see, the capacity of what he's comparing, if Cain's judgment, if judgment on an individual is touching Cain was this, for me it's this. What are we to glean from that? The point is Men's wickedness, their capacity to act out, their immoral temperament is increasing. It's getting worse in Enochville. It's not going away. Cain, under the patience of God, has not brought about a cultural development of mercy. He's brought about a cultural development of brutality. The ethos of the town reflects Cain, its founder. The first thing we see about Lamech as a character, the first strike that Moses wants us to remember about what brings about the further brutality of this town is its sexual ethics. There, there, there's, there's a left turn here in the institution of sexual intimacy. You, you, you have the paradigm established, right, for, for, for uh, what is read, if you were to be married, or you are married, have been married, what was read at the institution of marriage? At some point, someone makes reference to one man, a, a man and a woman, and they called him uh, husband and wife, and the two were together, and, and they were one. And, and so uh, a man leaves his, his family, and he clings to his wife and the two uh, let no man separate. There, there's some institutional language there at every, nearly every wedding ceremony because that's the way that God intended uh, humanity to live. That, that, that corresponds to nature. That's in harmony with the world that he created. That brings about human flourishing. The first move that, uh, that Lamech makes here is to rewrite his own marital script changed the sexual ethics and the dynamics of relations. He turns it into, and Moses marks very carefully for us, the first thing you notice about Lamech, he took two wives. This will then continue throughout the law of Israel to be a warning that you are not to take multiple wives. But then we'll see the constant taking of more than one wife. And we'll see the judgment that falls it regularly. Lamech sets the groundwork here for what has institutionally and sexually hurt civilization largely ever since going forward in one form or another. Um, When I think of uh, uh, polygamy here in the US, or or bigamy, I think it's like two, um, uh, really largely um, it's restricted to very narrow sects who practice something, what they think to be uh, non-legal forms or legal forms of polygamy. I don't think a lot of us are tempted with polygamy necessarily uh, to think, you know, could I marry somebody else constitutionally? Could I work that out? Never. I don't think like, people really struggle with that idea. Um, uh, coming to a church near you is probably closer to something about the definition of relationships and the idea of polyamory. Is more realistic where culture is shifting not institutionally can I that is have a marriage certificate with a couple of people on it or have two different or three different certificates but could I simply be in a committed relationship with multiple partners You'll notice the, the shift in the language and the redefining of marriage in many conversations and, and the way that it's crafted. And, and if you were an evangelical uh, back when there was an individual named Rob Bell that may have been relevant to you at one point, um, uh, uh, he, he, he tilted the language very carefully to move it that what God condemns about a man uh, with uh, being sexually active with another man, what he condemns is not that, or, and now it's morphing into, since he opened that door, it's morphing into polyamory. What God does not appreciate about one person loving multiple persons is that it's non-committal. God wants us simply, if we're going to behave this way, a man with another man or a man with multiple partners, is that he wants commitment. And it's the lack of that loving commitment that he condemns. You see, that's the shift. Is it's about commitment and relationship, not institution. But as we see with Adam and Eve, indeed, it's institution. It is by God's design and through nature, we can look out in the woods and see it. That indeed, there is a man and a woman, or a female and a male, and they are to be wed in a union. And this family union is to produce godly offspring and be the unit that pass along the faith. Lamech says, not so. I'm just going to go ahead and have two wives. And I'm going to have a huge family so I can be a big player in Enochville. There was uh, one minister. And I, I, I guess I wouldn't say minister, but th- 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 there was... Um, it, it is kind of fringe, so I don't want to be fear-mongering or creating the idea of, like, this is happening everywhere. But I do think, like, you should be wise to the influence of polyamorous definitions, that are influencing, pervading people's thoughts and, and influencers, those people at the top that are thought people, and then they produce thoughts and they produce ideas and they gather conferences and it works down trickle effect over a long period of time. I think you would be wise to note right now, just kind of have on your, on your radar, the idea of polyamory, how people are drawn to this idea. One minister, well, I, don't, I wouldn't call a minister, a, a guy who is being interviewed, Uh, was asked about the idea of polyamory in relations. That is, again, one individual who can have multiple love partners, but it's not like cheap recreational sex. It's committed relations. Outside institution, outside formality, but just the idea of, I'll stick around for six months. This idea of commitment. And he says, where do you get the idea that God, indeed, would bless polyamorous behavior? Polyamory as relations. And he said, well, God is the great God of polyamorous love. He himself is in love in three forms, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he takes this paradigm of the Trinity, God in love with himself, and says God himself is polyamorous. And think about how he relates to many people around the globe in union with all of them, in love with all of them, and committed to all. How could we be anything less in our own lives than polyamorous, lest we not mirror God? Now we'll stop off the insane train, come back to reality, and realize just how bad, how far we will go to redefine God, make him in our own image after the offspring of Cain. It was no different with Lamech. He just didn't spin it into some sort of weird philosophical, theological argument. He was just cool with it. But we have sophisticated think tanks or thought people who provide you a more sophisticated way of being sexually active with multiple partners and somehow still say it's appropriate before God and you're a believer. We need to be warned. The other aspect that we see about Lamech beyond the absurdity of changing the institution of marriage for one man and two wives. But what we see about him is the act of murder. He kills a man for nearly no reason at all. And it's not that he just builds on Cain, but he expands upon it boastfully. In this proverbial song that is passed down, obviously, it's passed down generationally. By the time Moses is writing the story, this is a well-known episode among people uh, in Enochville. This is how it went down. Lamech shouted out to his wives in boast. Now, why would, he, why would he address his wives? It seems to be twofold. On the one hand, he wants to increase his masculinity before them. Uh, you know, he, he's uh, big, bad Leroy Brown, um, the baddest man in the whole uh, town. He, he, that, 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 that's him. He, he, that, that, that's Lamech. And so he says, hey, you listen, wives. Th- this is me, Leroy Brown. And, and, and uh, you know, I, 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 they're like, "Well, no, you're not as bad as Leroy Brown. He's, and he says, yes, I am. I've killed a man for wounding me. Do you understand? Like, so so you, you think about it. The, the, the nature of relations of the revenge coming from Lamech is brutality. This guy wounded me. Put his hands on me. What did I do to him? Well, I put my hands on him. No, I killed him period. Nobody messes with Lamech. You see, it's different than Cain. Yeah, Cain had jealousy. Uh, He had insecurity. He killed his brother. All kinds of conspiracy to lead his vulnerable brother out into the wilderness or into the field in order to strike him dead, to put terror in his eyes when he realized his own brother is trying to beat his head in. It's brutal. But Lamech sits here and says, ah, no big deal. One guy put his hands on me and I killed him. And, and, and then, so you see the brutality. Then he goes on to expand it in a young man for striking me. There was a younger, uh, a younger lad, the terminology, a young boy, for striking me. I killed him. So you take note, wives. I'm big. I'm bad. Um, and then perhaps, secondly, so they didn't get the idea of uh, telling on him. Whoever messes with me will get it 77-fold. The intimidation factor. Um, this is what I've done. Interesting, and I won't stay long on this as we wind our time down, but uh, if we go back to the Midrash, it was interesting. The idea that um, they identify here that Lamech uh, killed a man uh, for wounding me. The idea was um, he killed Cain. Midrashic text would say this is Cain who he killed. Uh, the way that he killed Cain was Cain was hiding in the bushes still. or perhaps when Lamech came around. Lamech uh, was blind in his older life. Now, notice I'm speaking outside the text. I'm telling you midrashic exegesis at this point because we don't have any clue that Lamech was blind. But the idea is he was blind. He was being led out into the woods on a hunting trip, and the bushes were rustling, and the young man who's in the text, the young man says, hey, shoot into those bushes. It's game. So Lamech somehow shoots something into the bushes, and it was Cain, and he kills Cain. And then he turns around to the young man who told him to shoot and kills him for telling him to shoot and killing Cain. Pretty wild, I know, but interesting nonetheless. Realistically, it's just Lamech's a jerk. And he killed a guy for putting his hands on him because he's more brutal than Cain even was. Generationally, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But the root gets more rotten. The fruit gets more rotten. And that's what happened here with Lamech. But notice as I conclude with you then, this is our final time in chapter 4, that though the brutality exists in the city of Enoch, murder is on the move, brutality in the ethics, uh, machoism is ruling the day in the family unit, and there is polyamorous or bigamy taking place within sexual relations. The place is not a good place. It is a dark end to the story of Cain and his descendants, but God's promise of deliverance to the godly from chapter 3 is not dead. This is where the text ends, to give it a redeeming quality. And Adam, that is, the house of the godly, in the midst of brutality, the house of the godly, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and they called him Seth. For she said, now notice, that, notice the way that uh, Eve speaks. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Look at the grieving mother. Uh, the, 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 the chronology of the text says that this probably, uh, very likely, there's a probability it took place around 130. So this would be roughly about five years after the death of Abel. Again, you have to move a lot of numbers around, so just kind of tuck that away in your mind. But somewhere around that period, uh, Adam and Eve knew one another again, and and they conceived Seth. And and Seth is is a beautiful reception of God's promise, And, and she never forgot her poor son Abel. She never forgot about him. And as a grieving mother, she receives this baby. And notice the language is I have a seed. It's not, I have a man, like she said of Enoch. Her faith is matured. She hasn't boastfully said, this man is ready to go to war for us and defeat Satan today and bring us back. In patience and maturity through grieving, she receives this baby as a sign of God's surety and promise. No longer saying it's going to take place tomorrow. Gratefully receiving an offspring or a seed. Whereby God promised I would have a seed. And I thought that was taken from me and Abel. But my faith has matured and arisen. And I've received another baby in the place of my son Abel. I'll never forget Cain killed him. My last piece on this text of note, and it's really important as we move to the table is that Eve's hope in the offspring materializes in verse 26. So there's a fast-forwarding that takes place between 25 and 26. She receives this beautiful little baby as a grieving mother in the place of Abel, and she has hope in the promise of the offspring from Genesis 3.15 again. She is renewed and mature. And this hope materializes to Seth, As he grew under the tutelage of Adam and Eve, as he worshiped with them, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And the summary of this godly family, that is the church of Christ growing under the shadow of Enochville, is that at that time, Eve's hope was realized. People began to call upon the name of the Lord the promised offspring is expanding just as God had promised let us pray